Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Ogasho Galio Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 28, we're discussing Excalibur number 27, Real People, featuring a whole lot of nonsense that can be fun if you roll with it. And we encourage you to roll with it because if you get caught up on the hows and whys in this one, it'll feel like a long 22 pages. Excalibur number 27 was originally published in August 1990, and the creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Barry Windsor Smith on pencils, Bill Sienkiewicz on inks. Glynis Oliver on colors, Tom Orzachewski on letters, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. of making. We've got a very exciting guest with us today who knows a thing or two about X-Men, maybe a thing or three, who I will introduce in a moment. But first, your regular cast. I am Dr. Anna Papard. You all know who I am by now. I talk about gender and sexuality and representation in comics and pop culture in various academic and popular places. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, which is either an easy job or a hard one today, depending on how funny we think it is that Kurt spends a lot of this issue struggling to keep his pants on. I think it's pretty funny. Something new that you may not know about me. I am also a huge spy-fi fan, which makes the fact that this issue is set at Pinewood Studios kind of exciting. Mm. Am I going to make us talk about the original Avengers just a little bit? I am sure going to try. I am accompanied, as always, by Mav. Take it away. Uh, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. I'm excited to talk about Gawain and the Green Knight, which, you know, is a movie that I saw recently that has nothing to do with this. But, you know, we've done 20, <laughs> 27, 28 episodes of this, and I just thought I'd just sneak in a little pet project of mine that no one's going to be aware of. And, and seems completely out of character sort of like this issue um but, but, well but just not to not to interject but this issue does feature inspector die thomas who yes. is gowan <laughs> in knights of pendragon so there's a connection awesome. wow <laughs> well, I like almost because our podcast is clearly such big fans of Gorman's excalibur which i feel like green knight is a little bit of like a cultural successor to that in some it ways totally i feel is. like we should have an opinion and yet so maybe I, we will talk about it oh i loved it but anyway um yeah my name is christopher maverick i'm the host of another show vox popcast i talk about sex gender race class comics teach at a couple places i teach at a new place i just got a new i got a new job i'm working at pit Whoa. now too so Mom. yeah 
Um, yeah, lots of things. But um, more offer. Let's. We're going to talk about Nth Man today and Excalibur. It's going to be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Hey, I'm Dr. Andrew Man. Um, I'm on faculty at St. Charles University in the Department of English. I am the project lead of the Claremont Run, which is a big Chris Claremont project social media thing uh and when i was 10 years old i had a birthday at a bowling alley where we mixed a bunch of different flavors of soda together because we thought Ooh, it would make a great yeah. soda <laughs> it turns out it didn't because it actually made all the individual flavors that i loved not distinct anymore and as a result bringing that all together just didn't just didn't work <laughs> is that a metaphor for something andrew possibly <laughs> Well, thank you for sharing that very colorful and not especially delicious personal anecdote. The regular cast is joined, as I mentioned, by a guest who certainly knows his X-Men and lots of other stuff besides. The pod is ecstatic to welcome Connor Goldsmith. Welcome, Connor. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. I'd imagine many of our listeners are familiar with you already, but a little bit about your background, just in case. So Connor Goldsmith is a senior agent at Fuse Literary, specializing in a variety of nonfiction titles and science fiction, fantasy, and horror for adults. His clients include influential celebrities, celebrated journalists, and cultural critics, and award-winning novelists. Outside of his work as an agent, he is the host of the podcast Cerebro, a character-by-character exploration of Marvel's legendary X-Men comic book franchise. Now, Connor, I'd imagine anyone who's listened to our podcast has almost certainly checked out yours. Um, you are considerably more popular than us, and deservedly so. But Stop. just just in case, and also just because it's interesting, um, would you mind telling us a little bit about what your podcast does and what prompted you to start doing it? So, Cerebro, every episode I open by saying it is the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. <laughs> um, it is a character by character analysis of the franchise with a queer lens but also other lenses because I bring on a different guest every week sometimes they repeat but you know there's a guest every week and I try to bring on guests with a variety of perspectives so we'll talk about race in the X-Men we'll talk about class in the X-Men we'll talk about gender and sexuality in the X-Men but generally speaking what the podcast is is a newbie friendly way to introduce people to the almost 60 years of continuity in this franchise that can be infamously very confusing and uh the way that i do it is by having the guest on having a guest on who's passionate in whatever sense about the character of the week and then we talk about their journey to the x-men then i pause the show for the cerebro character file where i give a rundown of everything you need to know about that character's entire publication history in publication order so incorporating retcons as they happen and all the stuff you don't need to worry about and then <laughs> and then we come back and we talk about our favorite stories and then we answer questions. So it's, you know, it's just a, a chat podcast, but it has a little bit of an academic framework, which I really enjoy. And I am just really getting a kick out of doing it. We're coming up on episode 50, which will conclude season one. And I've been doing it for almost a year. So that's crazy. I started as sort of a pandemic project and I had no idea it would take off the way that it has. Well, can I ask you, why do you think that the podcast has resonated the way that it has with people. I mean, I think you're touching on a lot of the ways that it would resonate with people in terms of your format, but what's your kind of personal feeling about that? Because the podcast is super popular. Well, thank you. I mean, I'm really wowed by how popular it's gotten so quickly. I think it's a couple different things. One is I have to like give a shout out to Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, who I think have created 
a rich podcast fan space for this mm-hmm. franchise that mm. I was able to, and I'm, that you guys have now been able to sort of engage. Like there is a large group of people already pre-existing who are like, I like X-Men podcasts, you know? So that was helpful. They really revolutionized the space. But my show in particular, I think it's a couple different things. One is, I mean, my very first episode, I had my client Teeny Howard on, who is the writer of the current volume four of Excalibur. Um, we talked about Betsy Braddock and it was right before Ten of Swords. So I think there was a lot of fan interest in what she would have to say. And having a creator interview in my very first episode obviously went a long way to get people to listen. But they stuck around. And I don't know, it's hard to assess that without kind of bigging myself up, which I always feel weird about. But (laughs) I mean, I think people seem to like me, which I appreciate. (laughs) Um, And, you know, my guests bring really interesting perspectives. I've had Pulitzer Prize winning NatSec reporters on. I've had people from the X office. I've had people who are just really passionate fans. Everybody brings a different perspective. And uh, I've been lucky to have a lot of people with brilliant minds willing to come on to talk about, you know, karma for three hours, which is a tall order if it's a character like that who has a (laughs) spotty publication history, you know what I mean? But I also think that it's the format because, you know, Anna and I were talking about this earlier. You can jump into my podcast with any specific episode you want. You don't have to. I would love if you listened to all 40, (laughs) however many episodes are out by the time you hear this. And, you know, there are running jokes that build over time over the course of the show, like with any podcast. But I do think that it is easier for people who don't have that much time to binge, especially with my show, which tends to be at least two hours long every week, to just say, okay, well these are my 10 favorite characters, I'll listen to those episodes. And so that's been helpful. Or like when people read, and like for example, when Megan and Brian started popping up more frequently in Excalibur and Ten of Swords, those episodes kicked up in listener count a lot because I think people were like, who are these characters? Oh, there's a Cerebro episode. And that is sort of a service that I feel good about providing. Like Sage is another one where she's taken on more, Tessa, she's taken on more prominence in the current of X-Force. So that episode, each time she does something big in that book, like a couple hundred more people listen to the episode and go, who's she again? You know, and so that I think the ability to jump from episode 27 to 14 to 36, however you feel, is probably why it has so many, I guess, casual listeners in a way that podcasts don't always get. So I'm, I don't know. I'm just very grateful. It's been a success beyond my wildest dreams, frankly. And the fan base is really, really lovely. We have a little Discord server, and it's like the nicest place to talk about comics I've ever found on the internet, which is like Aww. notoriously not good to talk about comics. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think it's been so exciting for me as somebody who really did not feel included kind of in superhero fandom like 10, 15 years ago when I was first getting into it to see some of these like spaces opening up where we're allowed to talk about like X-Men comics from an explicitly queer lens, and that can be yeah. the lens that we don't have to apologize for it, and it's super exciting because it was not like that like 15 years years ago mm-hmm. and yeah and I mean I you know the I, the joke that I always make on my podcast is that I'm Madeline Pryor's personal defense attorney um because that sounds like somebody else's joke well yeah I think I did it first not to be rude um but the the thing is you uh, asked me like how I got into the x-men and like my personal history um you said that that was something you wanted to talk about before we started recording so I'm sorry if I'm jumping the gun but it's relevant oh no, please tell me um you know so my dad is an x-men collector he has 
like a nationally ranked collection. It's very fancy. I don't know. I'm not into like the grading plastic slabbing stuff. So I don't know any of how any of that works, but his is very comprehensive. And so I kind of grew up with the X-Men as like my first language. Like I was seven or eight and he gave me the Marvel Masterwork hardcovers. Like, here's the X-Men. Want to talk about it? Um, and well, it was, well, I mean, I, I, I started reading at like three. So I'm like, not to brag, but I was just an early reader. So he, uh, he was like, well, here's the thing that daddy collects. Like if you want to read them, but like, don't eat. Well, you read them. It's a hardcover, which I did anyway. Those hardcovers are beaten to shit. Um, but so he gave me, it was the, masterworks of the 60s run as they were coming out and the masterworks of the claremont run as they were coming out starting with giant size which is not claremont but you get what i mean Mm -hmm. and uh that was really the material that caught me i was obsessed with storm she was like the coolest superhero i'd ever seen and as i got a little older they started putting out trades of the events and so I, the 80s material is what I'm most attached to because I was growing up in the 90s and I didn't love X-Men in the 90s, especially. But all of the like reader copies that my dad had in the attic were so cool. And then the event trades started coming out and the first one I got was Inferno. And my father was like, yeah, I'm gonna let you buy that. And I was like, what? It's the X-Men. He was like, yeah, but I read that when it was coming out. <laughs> uh, I was 12, I think. And um you know, I read it and I cried when Ilyana sacrificed herself. And I was, you know, I think that is the peak of Claremont and Simonson on this franchise is that it's their climax. It's the climax of the Claremont run in many ways. I'm not saying there aren't stories that are pound for pound stronger, but nothing really hits every crazy note to that extent to me. And so even as a 12 year old, I was, you know, gay boy who identified with the female characters primarily and I was really troubled by what happens to Madeline Pryor I didn't think it was fair I didn't think it made sense she was their friend she had you know she had been used her entire life it's it's written as a tragedy it depends Claremont clearly writes it as a tragedy and is very sympathetic to her Simonson who is writing with sympathy for Scott and Jean kind of assassinates her character relentlessly but it uh but it was you know I, I was left I think forever with this sense that a great injustice had been done to this character on the other hand I don't think I would love her as much as I do if that story didn't exist right yeah because it is that grievance that I have it's the problematic nature of the art that makes me so passionate about it similarly I have this obsession with Candy Southern Warren's girlfriend who got fridged in X Factor because him cradling her body is one of the first scenes in Inferno and I had never seen her before because the 60s masterworks hadn't gotten to her yet and (laughs) I was like who is this woman what's going on and so it's sort of like I came in at the end with both of those women characters and felt that something wrong had happened. So then I was like, all right, I got to go back. Then the trades from Mutant Massacre and From the Ashes and Fall of the Mutants came out. And that was that stuff is all my favorite stuff. I love the Outback era. But in the 90s, when I started collecting, before all these trades started coming out, the book I ended up buying was Excalibur. My dad happened to have a couple issues. And I was like, this is so much fun. It's so like the art is so beautiful. And I loved Megan. I was very drawn to Megan and to Rachel. And I 
wanted to do more so he would take me to the comic shop and eventually I ended up getting pretty much the whole run from Claremont through Davis because the stuff that was coming out in the 90s after that I did not enjoy uh I love I love Amanda Sefton but I'm not I'm just not a big late stage Excalibur head so that that I mean part of it is uh Betsy was my favorite X-Man so the connection to Brian and Megan was interesting to me I was like this is her family this is her context this is where she comes from eventually I managed to get my hands on the Captain Britain stuff which I'm fully obsessed with mm-hmm. and uh you know it it just that was sort of my road in so being invited to be on an Excalibur podcast is very exciting all right let's do an issue summary and then we'll come back to these discussions of art and content in this issue because there is so much to talk about so I'm always apologizing for the plot summary and I will do so again now since it's breaking up a really wonderful conversation but plot summary may be relevant for this very confusing issue so we'll get it done quickly I promise Excalibur number 27 opens with Jamie Braddock in his London home staring at an empty TV screen doing what he normally does dreaming and waking and thinking he's dreaming his housekeeper Emma who we learn he's resurrected from the dead brings him a spot of tea with nobody's favorite heel, Nigel Frobisher, hot on her heels. Nigel informs Jamie that Excalibur has returned from their cross-time caper. Jamie doesn't care, and Nigel lashes out at Emma, splashing tea all over her face. Jamie does not appreciate that. In retaliation, he transforms Nigel into a Nigel's words, tarted-up version of Vixen. Nigel continues prodding Jamie about Excalibur, to which Jamie suggests doing what he does, catching up with Excalibur through the TV set. But when Jamie snaps his fingers at the TV, there's a blinding flash of light, and everything in the room except for the TV screen disappears, baffling both Nigel and Jamie. We cut to Pinewood Studios in London, where Excalibur is meeting with Brigadier Stewart and Di Thomas about the arrival of a Dr. Candy Goodstroke, a Pentagon consultant who seems to be from another dimension and is. She's from Earth 8908, aka the dimension populated by the Marvel Comics Presents character Enthman, a demon ninja guy, his companion Colonel Novakova, and his arch nemesis, a reality warper known as Alfie Omegan. Alfie and Omega, get it? If you're already baffled, so was I the first time I read this comic a decade ago, but please stay with us. Well, Brian and Megan deal with Dr. Goodstroke, Rachel, depressed from the apparent loss of Kitty, wanders alone through the studio. Kurt follows her and surprises her in a borrowed top hat and tails, inviting her to dance. This initially appears to cheer Rachel up, but when she realizes Kurt is dancing her up a spiral ramp, she flashes back to being tricked by Spiral. Her Phoenix Force flares, and she and Kurt disappear, subbed for Enthman and Novakova. On Earth 8908, Kurt and Rachel are promptly attacked by a giant Alfie dressed like Galactus. Rachel attacks Alfie forcefully and convincingly. This nearly kills Kurt, but thankfully, he just rips his pants. Meanwhile, in the 616, Enthman and Novakova journey through a Vietnam movie set before being confronted by Brian and Megan. They have a brief fight, but it's the movie props that take most of the damage. Back in the world of Enthman, Kurt, unable to reason with Rachel, starts problem solving. He sees Jamie on a TV screen and realizes he and Alfie are somehow connected and that a giant TV remote is the secret to solving everything. Anyway, Kurt eventually hits cancel on the remote and everything flashes back to normal. Rachel and Kurt rejoin the rest of Excalibur and Jamie is shown reading an Enthman comic book featuring Phoenix. He vows not to let Excalibur slip from his grasp the next time. Okay, so a couple of things right off the top. As I mentioned briefly in the plot summary, Nth Man, um, full official name, Nth Man, the ultimate ninja. Mm-hmm. And his universe was created by Larry Hama of G.I. Joe fame. And, and Wolverine ran- fame, Weapon X. Yes, absolutely. And it ran in Marvel Comics Presents for about a year. It was penciled by Ron Wagner, who we'll see pretty soon on the Girls' School from Hex storyline. Anyway, so Nth Man wasn't part of the 616 um, and is now fairly obscure, but during the time that this issue came out, um, 
may would have actually been appearing, I believe. This this would have been concurrent. Um, yeah. The, uh, roughly. <laughs> okay, well, roughly. It, might have it might have just finished. I can't no, remember. It was, it was running at the same, same time. Gotcha. Okay. It, it's confusing. I can fill in some blanks there. I'm going to be really real. I have never read Nth Man ever. No, so, no I, you know, I'm not. I, I have because I worked at a store. No one. Uh, well, go ahead. Just finish the thing. <laughs> it's, it's, oh, just one more some... thing. One more thing. I just wanted to mention the Pinewood Studios thing because I want to talk about that like a little mm -hmm. bit. So for those who don't know, it's a famous British film studio. Uh, many of the James Bond movies were filmed there mm -hmm. and lots of other famous things for British and American TV right up to the present. But of course, I am tired of talking. So let's get to these first impressions. We could talk about the Nth Man stuff. We could talk about the R. We could talk about whatever you want. But Connor, as our honored guest, you get guests privilege. Any rants or raves you want to get off your chest right off the top? Well, first of all, I mean, I, I sort of was saying this already. I think the art is absolutely gorgeous and it doesn't look like the rest of Excalibur that we're accustomed to with the Alan Davis art that is so flowing and warm. It's a very cold art style, as is Barry Windsor Smith's sort of trademark, I would say. And Everybody's got those wide set shark eyes in Barry Windsor Smith art. Yeah, well, and it's and it's a heavy line, and the line is only made heavier by Sienkiewicz's inks, right? So, like, the opening splash page of Jamie Braddock in Repose in the Manor is just like a stunning piece of horror art, almost. You know what I mean? Uh, I think this issue is really strong in the in one specific respect because I don't think that it is like it doesn't serve Excalibur as a story particularly in terms of the ongoing book except that I do think it presents Jamie Braddock as a real threat that we're supposed to be freaked out about mm -hmm. it sort of establishes him you know this is his Jasper's warp moment a little bit it's like do you understand how powerful this character is he's really powerful and also by the way he's completely out of his mind we've seen him we've seen an alternate version of him in the cross time caper which, which is again that's how Jasper's warp unfolds in Captain Britain right you see the 238 Jasper's before you see the 16 jaspers and then you're like oh shit he's here and i think that there's there's something to that and what i like about it is the way that jamie is sort of presented as a director here or if we're going to extrapolate as the writer of the issue he is sort of claremont directing the characters in some ways and i think that that is most profoundly illustrated by the sequence with nigel frobisher who actually is one of my favorite heels i think he is hilarious Wow. Um, oh boy. Wow. <laughs> I mean he's 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 a piece of shit, but I think the character is fascinating. We're I gonna come back to that. Yes. I mean again, I'm a big Courtney Ross fan in all her myriad incarnations, and I think that the dynamic between him and Saturnine is fascinating. But particularly because the gender play of Nigel Frobisher, I think, is a very weird undercurrent to a lot of this book. And it gets at a theme of Claremont's that is constant throughout his run on all of the X-Men titles, which is involuntary bodily transformation, right? So you have Karma possessed by the Shadow King. You have Betsy, most famously, being turned into an Asian woman, which is like a story that's not aged well, for, <laughs> if it even aged well at the time. He is really fascinating 
fascinated by those stories, by transformations that are done to you and what that does to your identity. Spiral transforms Rachel's body. She gives her an ideal body that she always wanted after the Rachel of Uncanny was this very gawky, uncomfortable, scrawny teenager. That all happens off screen between Uncanny 209 and The Sword is Drawn. It was supposed to be a Phoenix miniseries by Claremont and Rick Mm -hmm. Leonardi, but it was canceled. So I think that having Spiral turn up here, even if it's just as like a flashback, is meant to thematically key that in. Because the question of like, Nigel Frobisher doesn't want to be the vixen, but I think Nigel Frobisher does want to be Courtney Ross. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. We we have talked about this before. <laughs> have you? Like, okay. Well, I'll, so, say like, I'll say like just some of the general things that we've talked about before, just for reference. We've talked about really wanting to invest in the gender identity sort of issues. In the trans storyline that's happening here, because that's what's yeah, happening. It's just veiled because, you know, there would never, allow you to do that at this time. I mean, DeFalco was not as intense about that stuff as Shooter was, but there was definitely a taboo about explicit LGBT themes in these comics at that time. And Claremont had tried to do gender transformation storylines before. Annie Nascenti on my podcast talked about how he wanted to do a plot where Professor Xavier has to cross-dress to get into the hellfire club and like all of this stuff and that she nixed it because she thought it was too much and that she regrets nixing it now and about how the hellfire club generally in particular the character of emma frost seemed informed by the gender non-conforming gay people and the trans women that they knew in clubs like the limelight like they were in the nightlife so when you see a character pop up in for example the tarted up look that is mentioned here i mean that's club wear that someone in 1990 would wear it's very very real. And the only reason that it's horrific is because it's put on Nigel, who doesn't want to wear it, right? So or claims he doesn't, right? But yes. you'll notice as soon as the deed is done, he's just he starts sort of pointing his hands in kind of a feminine way. He's standing, like sort of looking at his breasts. It's like a very I just find this character interesting. I'm not again, this is not this is not a character that I would like put forward as like incredible trans representation, Nigel Frobisher. Like, right? That would be insane. But as a character who explores Claremont's interest in involuntary transformation through that lens as opposed to I mean the the ones I always think are really rough are the race ones like Betsy or like Sharon Friedlander and Tom Corsi yeah but this is one where the play of it is part of I mean Jamie Braddock himself is sort of this interesting androgynous kind of being right so there is like he's a masculine sexual threat but he's walking around in a thong there's just a lot of interesting queer stuff in this issue and in this book and so the jamie of it all was the point of interest for me i love that he brings emma back from the dead and particularly i love that the version of emma he brings back from the dead she speaks in a much more affected working class accent than the original emma ever did if you go back to captain britain and that's just claremont writing it versus delano and davis writing it i assume but because claremont loves a phonetic accent right like we know this guy (laughs) 
But it also creates the effect of this British aristocrat reconstituting his childhood nanny and making her into a stereotype of a working class Mm -hmm. charwoman, which Mm -hmm. I think is interesting when that's not really who she was, right? So those are my like initial thoughts. The actual story obviously is very, very weird, but is beautiful to look at and is a good character beat for Rachel. The thing that I regret about this issue is that the way it resolves is by rewinding Rachel's character beat. Yeah, yeah. So it's unclear to me if she remembers by the end any of what happened. It is very unclear. And yeah, we should talk about that conclusion. And I want to talk to about sort of questions of agency and whether because it starts out being Rachel's story, but I sort of have issues with she sort of flies into this rage and is unreasonable and then kind of Kurt takes over the story, which, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm a a Kurt stan, so it's like, not like I can be mad at that necessarily, but I am mad in terms of the sidelining of Rachel. I don't choose Mm -hmm. Kurt over Rachel ever, but um, but yeah, we we can talk about that. I want to talk a little bit more about the Nigel thing, though, since you brought it up, and it's something that we've talked about on the podcast many times in terms of this character. So, I mean, the complaints that we've had about it is just some of the inconsistency of the representation there, like in terms of what Nigel is looking for and how much buildup we've had of him kind of in his misogynist identity, and we weren't always sure if that was the best use of like five pages in an issue that really could have used five pages on something yeah. else <laughs> he's so just what... such an absolute shitbird and the way yeah. that his story ends not to spoil it for your guests but mm-hmm. it's extremely satisfying so I, yeah. it's an arc that I enjoy overall but yeah he's awful obviously <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I I did like this scene with him here, though, compared to some of the other ones that we've had. But I'll let Andrew and Mav um, jump in. And actually, I want to go to you, Andrew, because we haven't heard from you in ages. But did you have thoughts about this sort of Nigel transformation scene compared to some of the other ones that we've had in terms of it? I I do think this is a slightly more interesting and productive one than some of the other ones we've had. But I was curious about your thoughts about it as well. No, I agree with you. I think um, the other scenes have elements of body horror to it, Mm -hmm. um, where this one, we're seeing Nigel being progressively less and less upset. Uh, by these transformations um, and exactly as Connor is saying he's, he's starting to be impacted by them even when he's in his masculine form um, so we're definitely seeing a, a sort of um, softening of that edge for him which I think does open the door to exploring his I, I don't want to say participation because I don't think you can have participation without consent um, but on, on some level his engagement um, with these transformations well, when he walks in to talk to them, he's wearing lipstick and a dangly earring. Yeah. Like he's already, beca- like he's taken on a gender nonconforming presentation as his regular self, which to me is very interesting, right? Because he protests like, oh, don't turn me into a woman again, except clearly he's enjoying the gender play. That's always been my weirdness with him. Um, and that, well, but I think that's, that's really real for a lot of people on like, you know, he happens to be a villainous character who, you know, doesn't end up figuring his shit out. But <laughs> I think that a lot of people have complicated quests yes. with identity, you know? Yeah. And so for him to initially be like, oh my God, no, this is terrible because he thinks that it's te- like in- intellectually, he's like, this is something I should be embarrassed about or ashamed of. But then we start to see that in his personal life, he's started doing feminine things in a way that he clearly enjoys he's also wearing a white suit like trench coat suit that looks exactly like what courtney ross wears in the first arc of excalibur yeah so and like his hair to me looks blonder than it used to be i could be wrong but no no it is he starts off so that's the weirdness for me of it um he starts off as a massively toxic He's a pig. Bro, pig. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's being. 
he's he's over the top as, as chauvinistically um with his hitting on rachel and everything and then when he is first transformed uh joy boy first transforms him you know there there is a we we talked about it on the show there's an acknowledgement that he's sort of you know it's his fondest desire even though he'd never he'd never admit it so there's right. an acknowledgement of it my problem with it such that it's a problem but i do think it's i i agree with connor i think it's massively interesting to discuss we're at a vestige of a very specific time we're, we're telling these stories between 1988 and 1991 is when, mm-hmm. this arc, when, when this arc happens we have a comics code we have at the beginning shooter as our as our editor-in-chief we have claremont working in the in the x office claremont who is a cis white male yeah. um and as far as we know yeah, yeah. i actually i mean listen i'm not going to speculate about anybody <laughs> i don't know but he he is really fascinated by bodily transformation stories. yes just well, something and- i find interesting well, that's what I, that's what I think is. I think it's very easy to. Uh, this is something I've brought up in like my my teaching when I teach literature classes. I think it there is a in popular culture in 2021. It's very easy to dismiss the reading of something as well. This is just a straight white guy. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, straight white guys do exist in this world. And say what you will, Chris Claremont is a presumptively straight white cis male sure, in 1990 yes. trying to deal with something that is that no one else is touching. So like that's interesting. I do think it gets problematic in the we're wondering constantly does nigel want this or not because i think i i think in dealing with the code the story tries to have it both ways well it has to because you can't have him actually transition because they wouldn't be allowed to do that then the story doesn't happen so he has to remain a man in whatever sense so he has to be conflicted about it but I, i personally find that really interesting i mean i don't know i represent a trans woman author named Gretchen Felker Martin, whose debut novel Manhunt will be coming out in March, not to plug my stuff, but uh, it's a great book and you should pre-order it. Um, <laughs> the, but the she always argues that there is this desire, particularly when the creators are queer or trans, to create safe, gentle representation. And it's a narrative scarcity problem. The problem with Nigel Frobisher is that there are no trans characters in the X-Men that we're aware of. Right. So mm-hmm. if your only perhaps trans character on the page is this evil guy who has it done to him as a punishment, it's complicated. It's just as complicated as the Wanda Langowski arc in Alpha Flight, which is around the same time and is wild. So this is clearly a theme people were interested in, but the idea of transgender people was so taboo in media generally, outside of like presenting a sex worker occasionally on a TV show, that- and that rare at the time yeah like when you look at the crying game for example you know that's a movie that a lot of trans women critics have made really salient critiques of that i think are very smart it is also a movie that gives humanity and dignity to trans women in 1992 in a way that blew my mind so, you know, we, when you put something like this in its context, and this is something he wrote presumably in 1989, right? Or like 1990, I guess. Probably 90, maybe early 91, given when this would have been published, probably 1990. Yeah, I mean, you like, know, I'm two years old in 1990. Not to make anybody <laughs> feel super young, uh, super old on this podcast. I now feel but super old. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, but like, you know, I was talking to I was talking on Twitter to a listener today who's 19 and realized that he was born in 2002 and I wanted to like jump out a window um but you know it, it's just the the level to of to which this kind of thing has changed like i remember watching law and order or watching ally mcbeal or all these shows where if a trans 
character was presented in any kind of positive light, they would die horribly by the end of the episode. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, to to go back to what I was saying about Gretchen, I guess, I think it's important for gay and trans and queer characters to be allowed to be pieces of shit who don't really know what they're doing. The problem is, like, just like straight people, just like cis people, you know? The problem is, again, when it's the only character. I've had trans Mm -hmm. guests on the show, and we've talked about Mystique, who's another character that Claremont did a lot of this work with, sort of covertly in a lot of ways, um, both in terms of her sexuality and her relationship with death and with her gender presentation because his belief was that Mystique did not have a gender. And I have said that I think that the most interesting thing you could do with Mystique would be to reveal that she was assigned male when she was born. And it's always been the case. And this character has always existed and has always been trans. And I think that you can absolutely do that. You know, I mean, he intended for her to be Nightcrawler's father. Mm-hmm. And the problem there is that if it's just Mystique and you don't have a hero to counterbalance that, then your big trans character is a deceptive, murdering sociopath. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, like, on our you show, know, we argue, on our show, we argue that the hero counterbalancing that is Megan. So, <laughs> I I don't hate that interpretation. Interpretation yeah. at all. I mean, I am a huge Megan fan in every possible respect. And I think that Megan is a character who was never allowed enough interiority, particularly with regard to her Romana Shaw background, which I think is very stereotyped in these early Excalibur stories and doesn't get room to breathe, especially because she presents as like a white blonde woman, right? Which is not necessarily, I mean, she does appear to be a natural blonde because she was blonde as a gremlin, right? So like, you know, there's that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, you can absolutely also take Megan there as a character. There would be no reason not to, because Megan can shift gender effortlessly. There's that great issue where she ends up turning into Wolverine in her sexy Alan Davis Megan costume, mm-hmm. which I think is hilarious. I guess what I would say is I, I really totally understand why any trans reader might hate this storyline, you know? <laughs> but I as a young person found it really fascinating because I was thinking about gender and sexuality and who I was, and I wasn't sure who I was. And so seeing storylines like this that Claremont would slip into these comics, just like the way he would clearly slip in lesbian subtext in particular between all sorts of characters that I picked up on when I was a a gay kid. And it felt like we were sharing a secret. Like he saw me in a way that nothing else was seeing me. And that's part of what drew me to the X-Men more passionately than anything else i'll also defend it having having not been young when this came out <laughs> um, <laughs> um I, was, I was 16 but i was 16 i was working at a comic book store so i was reading everything I, mean, I was in charge of orders for a comic book store so i was mm-hmm. reading literally everything marvel and dc put out plus a, a fair bit of indie stuff this is probably for everything that you're saying about you know gender representation uh sexuality representation this is the most mainstream there is is what claremont's doing right now in in excalibur and in x-men at that point no but the next thing there's there's a few weird things happening in vertigo which are you know sure but i'm talking about at marvel you know and 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 even that even that's like on the you know the things that you're doing and and shade the changing man and and black orchid you know these are those are god those are i fucking outside. love black orchid yeah. but yeah they're outside the main <laughs> dc continuity right karen is- berger is letting people go rogue because these are books quote unquote for adults mm-hmm. so it's yes. a different mandate and this is so this is this is as much as you're getting so yeah it was for 1990 
this was fascinating. Yeah, because Marvel's first textually trans character, Jesse Drake, isn't introduced until, I want to say, four years later by Annie Nascenti. So at this point, even just touching the theme is extremely daring, you know? We got into such a fascinating conversation there, but we should kind of talk about the context of this issue just a little bit more, like the Nth Man connection and what the heck this is doing here and how possibly that it relates to Excalibur's identity as this cross-time team, which even though the cross-time caper is still over, we're still doing this dimension hopping stuff, reality warping stuff, and we will continue to do so as long as Jamie Braddock shows up in the series and as long as there's a portal to other dimensions of the basement. Yeah, I was like, that's Excalibur, baby, you know. (laughs) But anyway, Matt, do you want to tell us a little bit about Man, you were working at the comic book store. Were you yeah. familiar with this character at the time? I was familiar with it because, like, I was reading everything. I last read Nth Man was published from '89 to '90. You, you mentioned it. he starts in Marvel Comics Presents, which mm-hmm. we've talked about before on the show. Marvel Comics Presents is sort of a it's a series that is a collection of backup features that just kind of let's bind them together into one book. Continuity is very loose in it. Um, it's very much a test round kind of kind of series that's coming out at the time. Places a, a series called Marvel Fanfare, which was much the same thing. So, Nth Man premieres in Marvel Comics Presents. It's basically a passion project of Larry Hama. Larry Hama at the time is writing G.I. Joe, which is beyond all logic or belief, is just a massively popular book. Like, Gigantic no one would think it would be. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, it's good. I mean, Hama's an amazing writer. So, it's, it, so it's yeah. mostly because of him but like no one expected this to be gi joe is just this book that lights the world on fire out of nowhere um throughout much of the 80s and so larry hama is given the opportunity to basically do whatever he wants and he comes up with this passion project called nth man and nth man is in its own universe it is not connected to anything it is his epic story of this ninja guy named nth man he's got white hair he's the main character not the main character well, he's the main character in his book all the people who you see in this book that you don't recognize our characters in Nth Man. It's supposed to be this 24 issue epic. I was doing orders at the store for this year that Nth Man was coming out. I don't believe I ever sold one. Um, <laughs> <Ow>. <laughs> no one read Nth Man. Um, like it, it, it's and and eventually it's supposed to go 24 issues and it ends up being wrapped up at either 15 or 16. I don't remember anymore. Basically, Marvel pulls the plug on it and just says, no, "You have to stop." And he. <laughs> Clearly, it's very obvious that they basically told him he was done after issue 14 because issues 15 and 16, it's like, oh, and then there's a time jump of a year and here's some stuff. And it, it it's like this massive, rapid, I just want to finish this story because I've got my planned ending. And it doesn't matter because like, seriously, no one was really reading it it wasn't very popular it was supposed to be because he's the hot shot shot writer at the time yeah but he's writing just, wolverine and gi joe and gi joe pretty big yeah my understanding is it's got fans who like sort of remember it as this cult classic i've never met one of them but that's my, <laughs> underst- but that's my understanding of it, is that there are people who were sort of into it it had critical acclaim at the time again i got to read stuff for free i worked at the store i didn't get it i was 16 it's I, a I, little it's a little rude of us as excalibur fans yeah. though to be dogging on anyone for calling right. something a cult classic because right. and, I, and I don't mean to i don't mean <laughs> no to. I'm, I'm just kidding saying, i'm kidding I, I, i'm just saying <laughs> i'm just saying it was like if you're if you're reading along with our show and you get to this issue and you're like i don't know who any of these people are this is not because you're reading 30 years after the fact that was true 30 years ago when i read this this, is, this it was no one knew what was going yeah, on no one and, knows who these characters are and 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 it was just sort of a claremont wrote this 
So presumably he was reading Nth Man. Um, and, and like, oh, I'm into this. Let me do one thing with it because I'd have to check the exact publication dates, but I want to say it ends like two months after this. It like, so this is like a, it's like a commercial for a book that's going nowhere, a book that's going to be canceled. And it's so out of place because no one understood anything. And, you know, it, it, sure. We've just been reading the cross time caper. So, you know, par for the course, right. As, as far as not understanding the worlds you're in, but we're not technically on the cross time caper anymore. So it seemed bizarre. In fact, it might have been even made more sense if they just visited Instant Dimension in the during the cross time, time caper. Yeah, that's that why it's so sense. weird that this happens now. Yeah, it's it's just bizarre. So that's just for the listener. If you don't recognize anybody, you'll you're never going to hear from them again. It's fine. <laughs> I think this is their last appearance. All of yeah, them. Isn't I it? believe so. Um, well, canonically, Instant Sixteen is going to be their. Last. Oh, they they got another issue. Okay, good I, for them. I, Love that for yeah. them. Yeah, it's like I, well, I so think then this is maybe an ad a little bit for like pretty much for read this that, comic, yeah, you know. And it was too late. Yeah, I, I think that's what it is. I think this is. I think this is a back. Not a it's back a backdoor pilot, pilot essentially, but, but for yeah. a book that already existed. Yeah, it's just like a it's it, it's a crossover trying to you know let's get a little bit of the you know of of the rub from to use a wrestling term. We're gonna try to you know polish off some Excalibur on Nth Man and get people into it. Except for Excalibur is not the most popular book in the world. Right. right either, so, so it's, it's a really weird. It's a weird choice. I will say that back when I first read this as like a kid, I just assumed that these characters were invented for this issue and were yeah. not from a different. <laughs> like I thought it was just supposed to be an alternate world that we've never seen before and you're supposed to infer and I was like okay fine because a lot of that happens in Excalibur right exactly <laughs> like the you know the queen mother and all that that's that world is not from an existing comic like it's just another alternate world so when I was preparing for this I like was like you know I should probably look up Nth Man because I don't know anything about it and I was relieved to see that Larry Hama created him because the part where a white man goes Rin Pyo To Zai Zen Jin Retsu Shokai and reverses gravity made me gasp when I read it this time I was like wait 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 I was like Chris because it would because the thing is that's something Chris Claremont would do he loves he loves a, a Japanese mysticism moment for a white character. But like I know that chant like as Sailor Mars <laughs> in the original Japanese. That's how she banishes oh evil God. spirits. Oh god, I never picked up on that. Yes. Wow. Rin Kyoto's like she does she does the whole thing and then she goes Akureo Taisan and banishes the demon. It's it's a Taoist chant. But anyway, I digress because this is not a Sailor Moon podcast. But to, to know that a Japanese guy created this character made me feel better about him. It's just a weird, it's a weird book. The the Alfie character is also weird because he's positioned as sort of this opposite number to Jamie, which makes sense, but he's very different from Jamie, at least in this issue. Jamie is like a chaotic evil presence, right? Like he's just sort of pure inchoate, inchoate? I don't know how you say that word exactly. <laughs> pure, in, pure inchoate rage and whimsy in a way that is malevolent. This guy feels more like the Twilight own kid who can wish you into the cornfield <laughs> like there seems like there's like a weird innocence to him in this at least. yeah yeah okay okay i i now i did not reread nth man in order to in order to do this so i last read these in 1990 i the way i remember him is very 
not innocent, but um, like I remember, and it could just be that I read them at the, at the same time, but I remember him as very much along the Tetsuo and Akira, mm. um, like sort of a, you know, I've got power and I'm angry and I'm going to pout and use my powers. Right. To, I guess that's it's how I great, remember him. But I guess it's just that Dr. Goodstroke time. introduces him to us with the idea that his psychosis is based in a comic book fantasy. So like yeah. he seems stunted and sort of childlike in that way. And particularly as like Rachel and Kurt fight him, he just seems kind of hapless in a way that I thought was yeah. interesting. Which brings us back to Rachel, which I guess is what we were supposed to be talking about before I went off on a tangent. Oh no, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, I want to talk about like Rachel and Kurt and kind of their relationship, but um, we can start off talking about Rachel. I mean, I'm curious about some of the insight that we get into her psychology here because we get her sort of reflecting on the relationship with Kitty and blaming herself for the loss of Kitty, which I think is really interesting. I mean, it's obvious that she would do that, but this is the first time we have that kind of introduced as a plot point for Rachel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of the flashbacks to Spiral, I mean, we see how close to the surface her traumas are. So, I mean, Connor, I know you've obviously done an episode on Rachel on your podcast with Sarah Century, I believe. Yeah, I sure have. It's a good one, so, in my opinion. I mean, you know, I think I think I think Sarah's I think Sarah's brilliant. So whenever she's on yeah. the show, I'm excited. Yeah, that makes sense to me. But yeah, I mean, I was wondering about your thoughts about Rachel's kind of character journey as we see it depicted in this particular issue, and sort of how it relates to some of the things they've gone through in the caper. Because one of the things we keep coming back to on the podcast, and it's perhaps relevant to her going up the spiral ramp, is how circular a lot of her journey has been in Excalibur mm -hmm. up to this point. We have her revisiting the Dark Phoenix saga and the death of Jean again yeah. and again and again and having to re-traumatize her again and again and again. And we've been sort of trying to contextualize that. Like, does is that meaningful in terms of her progression? Like, I mean, are we talking about her having this circular trauma and that's meaningful? Is it just they weren't sure what to do with this character? Like, do we see definite progression here happening with Rachel? I guess is what I want to ask. Oh, I think Claremont absolutely knew what he wanted to do with the character. I don't think that's in question at all. I think that what Claremont does with his favorite characters is put them through as much trauma as they can possibly handle. That's he sort of puts them through a crucible to see how they come out the other end. And what I found interesting about this issue is that it doesn't to me feel like the Rachel of Excalibur. It feels like the Rachel of Uncanny, who was a much more raw nerve kind of character, mm -hmm. insecure, angry, prone to outbursts. And whatever she went through in Mojo World between Uncanny 2 and the sword is drawn when she comes back out she's more self-assured she's more confident she's more playful and that characterization i think does persist for most of excalibur the thing that's interesting here is that losing kitty and so far as she knows they can never get her back right? I think it takes her right back to Days of Future Past, right? When she felt them all die one by one in her head. I mean, Jean Grey's great trauma is feel as an origin story, is feeling one person die in her head. Rachel experiences the death psychically of everyone she ever loved. Uh, it's all That's also Betsy's big trauma in Captain Britain is that she's mind linked with Tom Lennox when he's killed by Jasper's people and she experiences his death telepathically and that's what gives her the power to use offensive telepathy which she never had before. She has to harness her anger and her grief. That's something that I think in this franchise is emphasized again and again particularly with psychic characters and so for Rachel what's interesting about this 
issue to me is that part of why I think Rachel should have always been the Phoenix, and it's a bummer to me that they ever took it away from her, is that she, because in Claremont's intention, is born of the Phoenix itself, she is the host that can deal with this. She's not corrupted by it in the way that her mother was. It's part of her. It's not a power that she gets a high off of, typically. But here, when she's at her most post-traumatic stressed out, I think that it becomes more like the way her mother dealt with that power. Because if you put her back in the position that she was in in Days of Future Past, psychologically, but you give her the power of the phoenix, imagine what she would have done. And so I think that that sort of what it is here is that it's like they send her to another world where there aren't really any consequences right because like this is a different world entirely it's very easy for her she's only what 19 to give in i think to her darker nature when she's given that context one thing i think is really interesting about this issue is the implication that in the world of Nth Man, all of our characters in Excalibur are comic book characters. Yeah, I know. It's a little inconsistent because Candy Goodstroke says that Excalibur as a team doesn't exist, but Nth Man establishes that Nightcrawler and Rachel exist. And mm-hmm. so that's interesting to me because that implies that in the alternate timeline of Nth Man, the Uncanny X-Men comic continues in a different way and Rachel <laughs> and Nightcrawler don't pivot off to Excalibur. Excalibur because he clearly Nth Man doesn't recognize Brian and Megan. So that's just a food for thought. But what's more interesting to me about that is that as we have seen on the cross time caper, Rachel is a universal constant. She's a multiversal anomaly who only exists in her own timeline. So this is sort of an interesting exception to that. She can exist as a fictional character, even if there can only be one Rachel in all the multiverse. And that starts to ask the question of like, where does this comic come from? How does Alfie's power interact with it? How does Jamie Braddock's power interact with it? Did Jamie Braddock create this comic book in the first place to futz with people? Like, there's so many questions that unfortunately will never be answered. Yeah. (laughs) But... It literalizes Rachel's role as a comic book character in a way that I think is illustrative of the place she's at in her arc, where she's looking back at all of the weird shit that has gone on with her in different comic books, and all of them kind of come back to roost here. So yeah, it's it's almost like a form and content thing. Yeah, I mean, I love that reading of it. I mean, if I can break down some of the like practicalities a little bit, like of the scene with her and Kurt sort of having the dance on the staircase, that scene reads as weird to me. Like the first time I read it, I assumed that this wasn't Kurt because of the spiral flashback and because his it voice... was spiral. Yeah. yeah, because his voice is very weird in this scene. Like he's like, oh, we lost Kitty. It's not a big deal. Whereas we'll see in future issues, he's like suicidal about losing Kitty. So I mean, I get that he might play it off like he's not concerned because that's a very Kurt thing to do but that definitely isn't how he's feeling based on what we learn in future issues i thought it was spiral i i don't think it was spiral it wasn't but i think that it clearly wasn't spiral because when we rewind it's not but yeah i think that what he's doing here is trying to cheer her up i mean he's basically saying for all we know kitty will be fine and we'll get her back and like i think it's a front you know i mean he's put on a costume literally i know to do this he's doing his like you know 
he's doing like a Fred Astaire thing here that is not, or Gene Kelly, that is like not who he really is. It's a performance that he's doing for her, which I think is why, in addition to the common shape of like their dance floor, she reacts to him as though he's a being of Mojo World, where everything is performative and it's all about television and film, right? Like they're on a movie set. Her big trauma in Mojo World that unfortunately we never saw. That's an X-Men Legends arc I would love to see, by the way. Get Chris and Rick Leonardi to do that. Um, You know, whatever trauma she experienced at Spiral's hands in Mojo World, it was all about film. I mean, The Sword is Drawn opens with that really terrifying sequence of the sort of like robo X-Men as actors. So it makes perfect sense to me that this is the scenario in which she would have that post-traumatic flashback. Kurt's behavior, I agree, is a little odd. I find him, though, generally kind of patronizing toward Rachel a lot of the time. (laughs) And um, that's part of why, I mean, in addition to the fact that Rachel's a fucking lesbian, that's part of why I really hated in more modern comics when the two of them were a couple for a bit. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Because that's not the right dynamic for her, in my opinion. I think that he is... And it's interesting because he's not patronizing with Megan, who's the character that everyone else patronizes. But I think that with Rachel, there's almost a like, now, now, dear, you know, and it's it's an attempt to calm her down because he saw her mother go nuclear, right? So there's an awareness in him that none of the other characters have because Kitty comes in after Dark Phoenix of the power of the Phoenix and how corrupting and terrifying it can be. So I think his instinct here is I need to calm her down, but mixed results. I'm always curious about the Kurt Rachel thing because it was Claremont that made them kiss for the first time. And I agree that that's But like it was that. bizarre. Like, it did like not work. relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, going that back was, to that life. was. I mean, that was when I love Chris Claremont, but that period is when he was really writing Rachel truly as like a pod person. And I think it's because he couldn't have Kitty because Whedon took Kitty. I really think that's what it is. I've heard that argument before, but yeah, there's just so many things. Like we're going to see a future issue in which baby Rachel is like given a Bamf doll. And I'm like, oh God, that's your future boyfriend. This is a lot. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a problem for Rachel always though, right? Because like Claremont's, know, in, Claremont's intention for Rachel was that Rachel and Kitty were supposed to end up together mm-hmm. someday when he would be allowed to do it. Which and, is also weird. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense if you're reading Excalibur, but then you remember that Kitty raised Rachel as like yeah, her yeah, godmother weird, in these weird, future creepy. past as Kate. So weird, creepy, too much Twilight. <laughs> very weird. That's why I'm a Rachel Betsy and Kate Ilyana person, personally. Ooh, yeah. Um, but I digress. Um, but if you're into the idea of Rachel and Betsy, the current volume of Excalibur is uh is a fun read, in my opinion. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, no, weird. The whole thing is weird. I mean... Well, X-Men relationships are always weird, so we can give that, like, as a given, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. I Rachel also. (laughs) I mean, I was encouraging Rachel to hook up with Hepzibah back at the beginning of the Hickman run, and then I was like, oh, technically, (laughs) technically Hepzibah, I guess, is her step-grandmother. But, like, you know, that's... (laughs) What are you gonna do? That's the X-Men, baby. Everyone's connected to some weird family tree somewhere. It's true. Well, okay, so I've opened this discussion of Kurt a little bit, and you know, I'm his PR manager, I always got to make us talk about him a little bit. What's your kind of take on him, Connor, in the sense that, well, I mean, I'll ask you the blunt, obvious question, is Kurt the leader of Excalibur? Yes. 
Um, not is it, is it a, qualified yes or a yes, yes? Well, he's not officially the leader of Excalibur, yeah, right? Yeah, that's I, always the tension. I mean, and that's the, the whole, the one thing I will say about, and the reason that I am sort of an unpopular opinion guy who is not into Kurt and Megan particularly, is that I think that the proxy war over Megan is more about who's going to lead the team and less about Megan herself. And it always kind of bums me out when a female character's love triangle arc is really about the male characters. And that's why the corrective that I really enjoy that you'll get to later is when Davis has her break up the fight between them and she's like, neither of you own me. No one owns me. Um, which is a big step for her character. I mean, again, you're, you know, you're a Kurt part of Megan is my favorite character in this book. So I'm always yeah. thinking of like, what would Megan think about this? And Kurt and Megan's relationship is very sweet, but we know the kind of woman Kurt actually wants to date. And it's someone like Amanda Sefton, speaking of weird relationships with, that are kind of incestuous, but um, <laughs> you know, someone who's snappy like that. He's attracted to Storm. Like I, Megan is someone who he likes, I think the idea of more than he would ever actually want to be with her. But that's a digression. In terms of who the leader is, the thing about Captain Britain, and this is true, not in the 70s material, but from the Dave Thorpe Allen Davis relaunch up through the Alan Moore stuff, up through the Delano and Davis stuff, up through the stuff that Davis wrote by himself. He is almost a joke character in the sense that like nothing ever goes right for him. He is constantly making the wrong decision. It's sort of taking the piss out of the idea of a nationalist hero to begin with, right? And that continues into Excalibur where he is constantly humiliated. I mean, one of my favorite bits is right after Inferno, that issue where he ends up in those tiny little shorts and he gets oh, arrested yeah. <laughs> for soliciting. Yes. Um, you know, that's funny. And like, there's... Um, I think it becomes clear as the book goes on that every character there, including Megan, looks to Kurt for leadership and not to Brian. And that's part of Brian's complex, but it's because he's an alcoholic who's mean. Like, you know, they all try to have an intervention with him at like the very beginning of the book and he won't listen to them. And it takes a long time for any of that to go anywhere. And I think it is after Davis wraps up the Courtney Ross plot that Brian sort of comes into his own a little bit as maybe I am actually like a proper leader of this team. But then Davis leaves and Britannic happens. And obviously <laughs> once Britannic hits, Kurt's the leader for the rest of the book. No question. I would push back just a little bit on the idea that Kurt and Brian are fighting over leadership because that doesn't resonate with Kurt's masculinity to me in the sense that I don't think he has an insecure masculinity in which that would be a goal of his but that's my reason. um I I think it's I mean I don't think that's entirely what it is I think he also is upset with how Brian treats Megan yes I mean, that's obviously, like, he, he actually does have feelings for Megan. I'm not saying that they don't exist. And he's the person Brian confided in about his affair with Courtney. So yeah, yeah. there's that element to it where he's just like, you have this beautiful woman who I really like, who's crazy about you, and you treat her like garbage. So there's that tension to their relationship that is real and is about Megan. But I do think, you know... You can read it how you want. And I, I, I mean, listen, I liked, I liked that one issue of way of X that you fucking hated. Anna. So oh, like, wow. I think we just have, I think we just have slightly, yeah, yeah. I, I know we, and I'm not asking us to, I'm just saying, I think that we probably have slightly different takes on the character. 
Well, yeah, I mean, my take on him is centrally concerned with sex positivity. So, I mean, and comfort in his own skin and self-acceptance and inclusion and acceptance of others, which, you know, I think like for me, some sort of the attraction for Megan, you know, having her shift into a version of him that accepts him, you know, physically, sexually on that level is mm-hmm. a huge part of the attraction for him. And I think it's part of the attraction in my reading, at least of like him for her as well, to be able to sort of touch and experiment with Kurt's difference and sort of experience the joy that he takes in his body through her body I think but do you not see that as I'm sorry but do you not see that as somewhat narcissistic on his part well it could be but I think you could argue that it's taking away (laughs) it's taking away Megan's agency to suggest that she wouldn't enjoy existing inside Kurt's body as well but Megan doesn't have agency at that point in the story it's a subconscious transformation well that's subjective (laughs) (laughs) I don't know it's complicated I think her achieving control over that power is an important beat in her arc and I don't think she has it yet at that point she does like her choosing to almost kiss him is her agency but the physical transformations are complicated they're complicated I will say that my preferred reading of it definitely like as a woman who kind of wants to be and have Kurt is that sure yeah no I get it prefer her to have that agency where she is sort of experimenting with his beautiful monstrousness and the joy that can be had from existing in that form. Well, particularly for her, that would be nice because she was so ashamed of her own monstrous mutated form. I just am not sure that I think that that's what's going on, but I like the, listen, I'll think about it. This is why (laughs) discussions are interesting. No, no, no. I mean, I'm saying like, this is why these conversations are interesting because your reading is perfectly valid. It's not my reading of it, but I now want to go back and look at that scene. You know what I mean? So like, that's the joy of talking about this shit with people who also care about it and think about it on a deeper level. Well, that's that's a good time to plug my essay called Blue Becomings for the Middle Spaces, all about Excalibur (laughs) number four and the desire to have and be Nightcrawler. Well, there you go. I'll take a look at it. Part of it is that I have never been sexually attracted to Nightcrawler. So I think that is the disconnect I have with a lot of Nightcrawler fans. Like, Brian is my type. So that's a, which not his personality, to be clear, physically my type. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, um... Well, and he's personality wise, he's my type now, now that he's sober and treats Megan like a queen. But like that took 30 years. I just think that I think that with Kurt, there is a protectiveness of these women that can become paternalistic. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, no, I'm not saying that makes him a bad person. And also like they're young women. So it's not crazy that you're like this 18 year old needs me to talk her down or this 15 year old in Kitty's case needs help or Megan who God only knows what age she is. But let's say maybe 20 max like, you know, I get it. Is she explicitly 18? Yeah. She was last time they mentioned her age. Gotcha. Which has been been two years of comics at this point. I was going to say, it's been a minute. Yeah. And well, and also, like, I just think it's really hard to say that because she has no records of anything and she changes her form amorphously. So, and she was like warped into another reality. So there's a lot of question marks about. Frankly, emotionally, she's 12 half the time. Uh, (laughs) I I disagree, actually. I think she's uneducated, but I think she's extremely emotionally intelligent. Hmm. I don't want to go too far into that. <laughs> That's a different. That that'd be a different I, issue. But I, no, I, I, well, I I think I think what what we were talking about before, and you even mentioned this briefly yourself, Connor. What makes this interesting is, and by the way, Anna knows that I've got differences of opinion on, on with her on Nightcrawler. Um, the, oh, I'm just I'm just we'll joking around. To be no. clear, if your listeners oh, no, don't no. listen to my podcast and I sound like a total asshole right now, this is just how I banter. I don't mean. Right. To, oh. I I think Anna's 
a genius. That's why I'm on her fucking podcast. So right. to be clear, and, like, you know, right. I'm not I'm not in any way saying she's wrong. I'm just saying that wasn't my read. That's all. That was and that was my point. I think what makes it interesting is I I think you have like you you literally took Anna's least favorite comic ever and gave me a reading where I where I thought, okay, that's interesting. Let me go back and and pay attention to this. Cause I didn't hate I didn't hate it, that book as much as Anna did. Uh, way of X number uh, that yeah. I didn't um um I was on the fence and you know she and I have talked about I think about it that. has I think it has problems. Don't get me but, wrong. But yes. like I, I think that the Kurt of it all made a lot of sense to me. He has an unbelievable hangover. It's his suggested policy that Stacy's throwing back in his face. And he is freaked out. And also, by the way, everyone in the issue is under the influence psychically of onslaught and is acting out their worst selves. So I think that we should let the story finish out before we worry too much about anyone acting slightly out of character. That's my hot take but, on that. Uh, I just, okay, I'm just, because we brought it up, but <laughs> I just... <laughs> Okay, it's like regardless of the sex positivity stuff, he's trying to ban contraception and non-procreative yes. sex. For I don't think he is. Co-op. I don't agree. I don't think that's what so happens. How he in interprets that story. his "Make More Mutants" law is as anti-contraception. He says you can't be handing that out because of "Make More Mutants." I the way that he he reacts to her throwing condoms to teenagers. I think it's a very different. I don't think he's saying I'm opposed to contraception. Uh, that's not how I interpret that. That's not how See, I read it. review. I'm just because, saying, you know. Well, and just I'm just gonna give mine. Try, try to get us out of this. Um, but, but, we can we can pivot out. I just no, the only uh, reason I brought it up because I thought it would make her laugh. <laughs> Is be like just to say, I think we just have very different ideas about Kurt. That's to me, Kurt has a healthy dose of Catholic shame. It is in a lot of his stuff. Have, if the one of my favorite Kurt books is the Roberto Aguirre Sacasa miniseries, or I guess the Maxi series, that's all about him and Amanda and weirdly Night Nurse. And it's all sort of about the conflict between his Catholic faith and the fact that he really wants to be fucking his sister. And that's kind of well, that's the weird. <sighs> <laughs> I, I do not see Kurt as a character that has shame about almost anything. But go ahead. But okay, he, well, um, it's it. Dep- I mean, I don't know. I every Catholic I know has a lot of shame somewhere that's in there. Weirdness, to me. yes. Because Kurt's Kurt's not raised Kurt's Catholic. Special. I mean, and the exp- only explanation um, we've ever had of him being Catholic is for like a origins issue that is not canon. Mm-hmm. I actually, I'm not sure. I agree. I think he might have been raised Catholic. Well, he's raised by Margali. So. By Margali, but a lot of Romani people are Catholic. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, they it's just have their own. They have folk. They have folk religious stuff on top of that. Sometimes, well, but we've never had that explained as a story. I, so I'm, I, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. She's from. She Margali is Manouche from France. So, like, the idea that she was Catholic is not crazy. It's neither explicit nor unbelievable. Right. It's a, it, and and that's kind of well. So Anna's heard heard me say this before. To me, what I makes Margali Sardish? So we can't get into Margali Sardish, or I'll just go on a tear. Yeah. So we. Have well, to- I'm, I'm skipping her. <laughs> to me, what's made what's made this interesting is I believe that Kurt has lost his entire mind because he lives in a world where I think his faith has been important to him. Correct. But it is but it is meaningless in a world where everyone is now immortal and you know beyond 
human considerations. Like every, like I, I believe he's had a complete psychological breakdown. That's what I'm saying. He's having a complete crisis of faith and also has the worst hangover of his entire life. And yeah, that I don't believe because he's, he's hung out with Wolverine. So he should have had worse. But um, (laughs) Uh, I have to assume that the, that the booze at the hellfire gala, that's an Emma Frost joint. You know, there's stuff in that that you've never even (laughs) conceived of. So I'll go. I mean, I, 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 try. We I don't know. Man. Okay. Like, I, I, we, can sorry, we can move on. We can move on. We can move on. But I will say that there have been twice in Kurt's history that he was like brainwashed into repressing his sexuality. Both of those occasions, he heroically resisted it and asserted his sexuality. So the idea <laughs> that he would be psychologically manipulated into slut shaming sex workers, abandoning contraception, I find very inconsistent with his character. I, I, but again, I don't think that's what he did. So, you know, we just read the issue differently, but it's fine. We don't have to talk about it. My, I, I really, I'm sorry I brought it up. I just, <laughs> I just thought it would be a funny point because it is a recent thing that illustrated how differently you and I see that character that's all that's okay i didn't you know it's fine listen it's he's not my favorite character so i have probably a looser take on him than like if you wanted to if you said something sideways about betsy braddock i would have a fit so you know (laughs) we're like we don't have to you know i completely get it and listen there's a lot of things you could say sideways about betsy braddock but they have to be the things i agree with like that's the that's the way it is with your favorites and this is me and andrew sitting in the background going yeah at least Oyana's perfect and okay Well, I, yeah, so I mean, I'll just say your comment about Betsy flipped around for, for me and Kerr. But anyway, um, so let's talk about the conclusion of this issue a little bit. And I want to bring Andrew back into this because, Andrew, we haven't heard from you in like eight Yeah, years. Andrew, speak up. Hi. Sing out, Louise. <laughs> but like, Andrew, like things that you want to sort of add about things that we've talked about, or do you have any thoughts about the ending and sort of this reveal that there's the Nth Man comic book and Jamie Braddock is pulling the strings of Excalibur? And what are some of the implications of this moving forward? Uh, moving forward, I think it's kind of, uh, again, they're just trying to build Jamie. They're trying to establish him as a heavy. Maybe related to that? For me, the problem with the whole presence of the Nth Man and the story that they're trying to tell here is that the decoy stories to me are better than the story they ended up telling. Like the best Rachel scenes are always scenes where Rachel gets isolated with one other character because that's who Rachel is. She hides in the crowd. Um, So Mm -hmm. having her have a heart to heart with Kurt, that's awesome. I want to see that, but it's not Kurt. And having Rachel having to sort of come to terms with the agency that she lost in her relationship with Spiral, that's an epic confrontation that I would love to see for all the reasons Connor mentioned uh, in terms of that aspect of the character. And it's not Spiral. And we don't get it, right? It's yeah, just like a, so it's yeah. so anticlimactic. It's frustrating. And um, similarly, I think that the problem here is that, yeah, it's an issue about setting up Jamie as this big threat, but Jamie doesn't actually interact with anyone but Kurt. And like, he's Brian's brother. It's a weird, it's weird. Yeah, go ahead, Andrew. I was going to say, what I like best about Jamie as a villain is, again, something Connor mentioned, just how out of touch he is, that disconnect. That's what makes him scary. That's what makes him a great symbol of privilege, which is what I think he represents. He's he's the this horrific personification of privilege. So He's when the aristocracy act, at its worst, yeah, yeah. So when he starts to act kind of slapstick, I don't love that. And I think he starts to get more lucid in this issue than some of the other iterations we've seen. Not counting the alternate universe, Jamie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to me, that's actually having the opposite effect of what the issue is trying to establish, which is to again make Jamie heavy, set up Jamie as an epic X Men villain. Uh, and I love, I love the prologue. 
I love the narration in it other than the random book drop. That's <laughs> just very Chris. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, the new wave science much like fiction. This, throw it in. Much like this obscure science fiction story once said, it's like, Chris, stop. <laughs> Exactly. I love you, but stop it. Yeah. So um, for me, the issue defeats itself a little bit with the Nth Man stuff. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's like the lucidness that you're saying about Jamie sort of bothered me too, in the sense that like, okay, now he's got a determined plan to ruin Excalibur. Since when has he had a plan to do anything? Yeah, exactly. Or cared even a little. He shouldn't. Well, we should actually think about wrapping up, unfortunately, like even though I could like go on with this stuff and I do apologize for us going on a tangent, but I honestly think it was really interesting and like our listeners will be interested in it. So I'm all good with that. But um, any final thoughts that people wanted to bring up, like stuff that you're desperate to talk about that we didn't get a chance to talk about? And I'll give you the first crack at it again, Andrew, since we've heard your voice the least on this particular podcast. I still don't like the artwork. <laughs> you just... don't? Uh, really? Think about what Barry Windsor Smith normally looks like and the organic mm. geometric forms and they're not here because yeah. Sinkowitz doesn't do that and I think about the surrealism and sort of the mixed media style stuff that Sinkowitz does and it's not here because Barry Windsor Smith doesn't do that so I'm just being snotty and just thinking about what's not there rather than what is there see it's just such a unique marriage of two iconoclastic styles that I find this issue very appealing in that sense I feel I like it's a bad marriage it's, it's Brian and oh. For me, it's just oh, weird. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I look at it and I can, like, I look at it and if I stare at it one way, I can see Sinkovich. If I stare at it the other way, yeah. I, can, I can see Windsor. And, and, and it, just go, it, it just goes back and forth. And, I, and I'm just like, how, how did this happen? It, it's so it weird works, to me. It works better in some portions than in others. I think that when he's aping Davis, it looks bad. So like the Kurt and Rachel dance sequence, which is a very Alan Davis-y sequence, it doesn't, you know, it like doesn't quite scan, but I think that the prologue in particular with Jamie and Emma and Nigel is stunning to look at. That first page to me is the, the, the literally the Jamie sitting in the chair is the pinnacle of it for me. And then after that, I'm just so aware of how weird it is for the entire book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. That's Take fair. the village. I... I like it in the sense that it's memorable, but I can definitely see what you're both talking about. I'm just saying in terms of fill-ins on Excalibur. Yeah, well. Oh, yeah, Because yeah, apart from the Ron Lim <laughs> yeah. fill-ins, which are fine, almost every fill-in on this book is fucking atrocious. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I, this one is one where I go, at least it's interesting to look it's at. It's interesting. Yeah. You know? I have something completely unrelated that I just want to call attention to, just because we, we we talked about Hama briefly when we were talking about Nth Man and what it is. I think the director is supposed to be Larry Hama. I the director that of, too. I thought that like, too, but I wasn't cause sure. Because I, I know what he looks like, and I think that's what they're doing. And also the fact that the movie that they're that they're crashing is Nam the movie, which we didn't really talk about at all, but oh, yeah. Nam is Hama's other passion project at mm -hmm. this point. He's actually just leaving. Uh, the Nam is a Marvel Comics book that is, at least in its original incarnation, is not in the Marvel Universe. It's just telling the story of Vietnam through grunts, through regular grunt soldiers on the front line, uh, roughly 20 years after, it starts in 86, and so 86 or 87. So roughly the stories are like 20 years real time after they happen in real life. And 
it was like Hamas. He wasn't a writer. He was an editor. He was the editor for it when it starts. And I believe he came up with the concept. And then it was sort of getting away from him. They were moving it to other people. Huh? Michael Higgins, who's a frequent contributor in Excalibur, I believe, took takes over as editor around this time. It's weird seeing that addressed and then them doing nothing with it. Um, the world in 1990 is still very much, you know, the 80s were very much trying to come to terms with what Vietnam was. Mm-hmm. And so and I think a lot of that is happening, even with the the giant Alfie running through this set that is the set of, you know, of Vietnam. And we have shows on television right now called like China Beach, which no one remembers but me. True of duty. I remember China Beach. Oh, good for you guys. <laughs> didn't Dana Delaney win an, om- didn't win an Emmy for that? Dana Delaney's um, show, she, and she is amazing on it. But like, um, the, I, I think it, it the started airing is... the year I was born. So I only ever caught it in reruns, but you know. <laughs> Again, I felt very old. But <laughs> Love Dana but, Delaney um, though. Yeah, but this is this book is trying to sort of deal with coloring of this world of we're still obsessed with Vietnam, even though we tried to leave, you know, we've we tried to leave 16 years ago and we never really left is what is what I think it's trying to do. And it it's 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 an interesting backdrop. Um, Just if you notice it, you know, the director who, again, I think is supposed to be Larry Hama has the nom nom the movie written on the back of his shirt the entire book. Yeah, I mean, this is something Claremont loved doing was these little winky moments where and it's, it goes back to Stan and Jack. It's not like he invented it, but there's that annual where uh, the uh, that uncanny annual where Ricochet Rita, who is visually and personality wise based Annie. on Annie Nascenti, is arguing with Mojo, and the people all around her also arguing with Mojo in his writers' room are Chris Claremont, Art Adams, and Tom Wozniakowski. So there's a lot of stuff like that throughout Claremont's work. I think it's sort of a cute nod to like we're using Larry's characters. But the nom thing here is interesting specifically because it makes me wonder what Claremont thought about that comic. The way it's presented here is as almost like this director is making a tacky film about something serious. And that's not what Nam is. Yeah. I've never read it. Nam is, Nam is, Larry Hama is a Vietnam vet and Nam is. But so that's what I'm saying is like, it's, it feels almost like a commentary on the movie business specifically, like the idea that they would take that comic which was very moving and serious and turn it into this thing where a bunch of suits and guys in like a guy in a camo t-shirt who's like a poser is you know yelling at people that they're costing him money i think there's potentially some commentary there about like adaptations but i don't know it's we're we're, at at a certain point you're trying to get blood from a stone because this issue is filler (laughs) yeah Yeah, and i mean it makes me want to like make a complicated argument about like well what's the argument that this comic is making about the cultural value of comic books versus film and how is this interacting but i don't think it is really making (laughs) any real arguments i mean but there's the whole thing i mean like the whole the the way that it's all functioning out of a television the reality warp like there's some i mean i i, I was a media studies grad student god help me so like <laughs> my my thought process is always like you know what would adorno think about this right so it's oh, like a oh very dear. yeah a so like that's a good question to ask yourself always. you know so like i'm not 
I, but I don't know that there's any, I don't know that there's any there there. It's just where my brain goes. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, I have a couple of little ones. They're both like related to costuming things. Like one of them is like when they switch bodies, like we didn't talk about, yeah, the little co- comments about sort of the discomfort with Rachel's costume. Oh shit, and we should comment on, there is a comment that Rachel doesn't wear underwear under her costume right, and yeah. there are no zippers on the costume, which we've brought those possibilities up before, but it is made explicit that both of those things are true here when Novakova is in Rachel's costume. Mm-hmm. But also, Which, when, I, I yeah, assume she gets it. I assume she gets it on telekinetically, like yeah. by rearranging mm-hmm. molecules or whatever. But that raises the question of how Kitty got it on in the oh, yeah. Wolf story. I Kitty guess she got, phased yeah. into it. Yeah, yeah. Kitty can phase. Mm-hmm. That makes yeah. sense. But and so the other thing mm-hmm. is that when Enthman and Kurt switch bodies, and Enthman in the first panel where Enthman is wearing Kurt's costume, it's like he's not wearing the blue underneath part of his costume, which would like suggest that Kurt's costume, the blue parts of it, are like his fur slash skin which it's drawn differently Mm -hmm. in subsequent panels but that's sometimes a question that gets raised about the nature of Kurt's costume of course he will have a costume later in Excalibur that does take that form so I thought that that was a funny sort of little artistic slip and of course you know him having to fight the issue with like I'm always curious about sort of the relationship between Kurt and clothes and sort of performance and like even sort of the practicalities of like when he buys clothes does he have all of his clothes altered to accommodate his tail does he do that himself does he send that out to be done and so like (laughs) him putting having to wear regular pants and having these issues i like i don't know it's funny but it's also like a nice little touch to you know the uniqueness of his body and like how his body exists in space i feel like there must like stevie hunter must be doing like someone at the at the well not now but somebody back at the mansion was probably like oh god i gotta like sew a tail hole in this like (laughs) Sharon Friedlander, like one of the staffers who's not going out on missions. You know what I mean? Maybe Tom Corsi is really good with a needle. <laughs> I would like to hear that backup story sometime. <laughs> I don't think we will ever see Tom Corsi again. <laughs> yeah, maybe not that particular backup story. But yeah. By the way, 126 plus weeks. Does that mean you're going to do like the Ben Robb miniseries and like new Excalibur and all of that stuff? Well, we've already done Mojo Mayhem, which is why our episode gotcha. number is screwed up. But okay. um, we're thinking about doing some of the specials, but some of them we hate too much, so we're not doing them. So we're not. I mean, <laughs> I like Ben Robb has written stuff that I really do like, but that miniseries. Eat. Yeah, it there's a lot of unpleasant. Good. There's a lot of unpleasant <laughs> Scalar miniseries that I don't necessarily want to talk yeah. to. We're not. We're not doing Weird War Three. Um, Weird for War Three. Yeah. I was wondering if you were going to mention names. Yeah, we're not doing Weird War Three. If our if our listeners are wondering because it should have happened already, and they're like, and they're no, wondering why didn't we're we not ever doing talk it. about that? Sorry, we don't want to. Don't yeah. want to. <laughs> we don't want to. Listen, I get it. My podcast skips over Inhumans versus X Men every week, so you know, <laughs> I just go. We're not. We're not. We don't talk about that on this podcast. And we're moving on. So, like, you know, we all have to make choices. What must I do now? Kill them? I can tell you nothing. My days are ending. The gods of once are gone. Forever. It's a time for men. It's your time. I need you now. More than ever. No. This is the moment that you must face at last, to be king alone. And you, old friend? Will I see you again? No. (laughs) There are other worlds. This one is done with me.
on that note, uh, let's wrap things up. Other than to say, Connor, thank you so, so, so much again for joining us. Um, we already plugged a bunch of your things at the top, but you might as well plug it again. Assuming <laughs> you want people to find you, where can they find you? And yeah. what things of yours should they check out? Well, thank you for inviting me. I was really excited to come on. I uh, I love Excalibur. It, it really was one of my big gateway drugs into comics and into this franchise. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Dream of Organon. It's a Kate Bush lyric. Connor Goldsmith on Twitter is taken by a teenager who's been squatting on it for like 10 years. Um, <laughs> or you can follow me at Connor Goldsmith on Instagram. You can find Cerebro at Cerebrocast on Twitter and Instagram. You can find all of the episodes at Cerebrocast.com, which is the official landing page for the podcast. You can also find links to the Patreon, the Discord, the merch store, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in terms of episodes worth listening to of the show, uh, I have already at this point done an episode on each of the five core members of Excalibur. So Kurt, Brian, Megan, Rachel, Kitty. Um, so those obviously I would say to listen to. Otherwise, Excalibur adjacent um, there's an Opal Luna Saturnine episode that I think is worth listening to. And I would listen to the first episode on Betsy Braddock because there's a lot of Braddock related content in it generally. But in general, you know, I, I think it's pretty good. So just listen to whatever <laughs> the spirit moves you to listen to. I guess the Moira McTaggart episode also has Excalibur stuff, like 90s Excalibur stuff in it. But it's mostly about House of X Powers of 10 and how it recontextualizes everything about Moira and like us having fun with like, what does this mean for this scene? Like, let's reread every scene Moira's ever been, yeah. you know, taking the retcon into account. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I uh, I do it once a week unless I fuck up and fall behind and uh, I really love doing it. So please come join us if you haven't before and uh, I hope you survive the experience. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much again, Connor. Ooh, the next issue is the Colleen Duran one. Yeah, the episode's good. We liked that one. Next in one week's time, we'll be on to episode 29 discussing Excalibur 28, The Night They Tore Down the Gilded Lady. It's a fill-in issue, but it's a good one in which Brian and Megan go on a date and it doesn't totally suck. We've already recorded that one with a super smart guest and it was super fun and super sexy and I absolutely cannot wait to share it with you. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and Mav, for another transporting conversation thank you connor for lending us your insights thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for music for our truly epic theme song play us out all right stop and upload this thing <laughs>